Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. We live at a time um, in the church in the U.S. where um, with, for most churches, for a lot of churches, the dominant thinking um, seems to be on church growth and church size. Um, there's endless websites if you go online and you can find websites that rank the largest and the fastest growing churches in America or in any state in America for that matter, along with kind of articles under headlines like uh, top ranked churches in the U.S. and five things to learn from the fastest growing 100 churches in America. Out of interest, I decided to Google the phrase keys to church growth. And I came across uh, what what Google came back with was 1.3 or just over 1.3 million articles that provides keys for church growth. The top seven had this as their kind of main phrase, seven keys, five keys, 10 keys, six keys, three keys. His presence is the key. And then just to mix things up, five principles to church growth. And uh, it kind of left me a little bit at times feeling like I do when I, when I try and use my wife's set of keys. Uh, these are my wife's set of keys. I'm convinced that there are probably only two or three keys that she knows what actually works. Um, and I do know that there is a key for every lock. I just don't know what, which, the, which one works with which particular lock. That's, that's kind of how I feel when I came across this particular list. What, what's interesting is that common to every single article that I looked at, those seven articles that I looked at, was this notion that in order for a church to grow, it is our responsibility to go out and get people from the world and bring them into our Sunday celebrations. So the emphasis seems to be on Sundays, this kind of reach out and drag them in mentality. I love Sundays. I honestly do. And I especially love Sundays at Church in the City. I love what we get to do together that we can't do alone. I, 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 love, I love worshiping with you, and I love praying with you, and I love teaching the Word of God, and I love sitting under teaching when I'm not teaching myself. I love, I love meeting new people, and I love seeing you guys meet new people, and I love seeing the church serve one another with excellence and with a Jesus focus, with our gifts. I love the, the anticipation of, of, of kind of wondering what God is going to do on a Sunday morning. I, I, I love his presence that we get to enjoy together on Sundays. I love especially seeing people come to know Jesus for the first time here on Sundays. And, and maybe for some who, who have drifted away from God and are making that decision to come back to know Jesus intimately. I absolutely love Sundays, but I don't for a moment subscribe to the idea that Sunday celebrations or Sunday mornings are the dominant way for us to see the world change. And it's not the dominant way for us to see outreach happening. And I don't for a moment subscribe to the idea that church size is the indication of what a successful church is. So if Sunday mornings aren't the way that we are to reach out to the world, then how are we to go about it? I think every person in here who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior would have to agree, whether you want to or not, that God wants us to tell others about his son, Jesus. Now, even as I say that, I know that there are a myriad of responses to that idea of personal evangelism. There are some of you who are sitting here who inside are literally shouting, yes, it is about time. The church needs to rise up and with courage and boldness, go onto the street corners and proclaim that Jesus is returning. I know there are some of you in this room and you're, you're just being very quiet at the moment, but I know you're out there. 
And I know there are others who the, idea, the very idea of personal evangelism is causing you to wilt. And it's causing you to start to shut down inside. I think there is unfortunately no activity or, or aspect of the Christian walk like personal evangelism or the idea of telling others about Jesus that can impose guilt upon us like this, like this particular idea. And it's not because Jesus got it wrong when he said to us, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It's because we've got it wrong, because we've forgotten that Jesus promises to be with us when we go and do that, and we've got it wrong because we tend to forget who does the saving. We tend to place that particular burden upon ourselves. Sharing the gospel with others has always been a particular challenge for me. It's not because I don't love Jesus, because I, I do. I love him with all of my heart. And it's not because I don't want to see people saved. I absolutely do. It's, it's one thing that I probably pray for more than anything else, is this desire to see people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Sometimes I've tried to excuse it because of my personality. But when I read scripture and I read Paul saying to Timothy, do the work of, of an evangelist, it doesn't come with the clause, only if you are an extrovert. And so I realized that I can't use my personality as an excuse to, to kind of hide behind this responsibility, this opportunity that we get to share Jesus with others. If I'm honest, the thing that I'm challenged with most, the thing that, 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 that kind of challenges me the most is the reality of guilt that I carry from past mistakes and missed opportunities. Unfortunately, in my journey with the Lord, I've allowed this idea of sharing the gospel with others to, to swing from one extreme to the other. At times, I've been, I've been overzealous, and I've been unwise, and I've been hurtful and unhelpful. And some of you have heard me share this particular testimony before, but like with my dad, who, who as soon as I got saved, I, I became zealous, and I preached fire and brimstone to my father. And all I was able to do was push him away from the gospel. And by the grace of God, 20 years later, he came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, just prior to him passing. And because of kind of being overzealous at times, I've allowed the pendulum to swing over to, to kind of being, being shy and retiring and, and not taking the opportunities that, that the Lord is providing for me to share the gospel. Kind of living with that idea that, well, God is able to do it himself. He doesn't necessarily need me to do it. I think the reality with guilt, as it's played out in my life, is I've either tried to ignore guilt by not doing anything about preaching the gospel, or I've tried to counter guilt by placing upon myself this obligation or the sense of responsibility to preach the gospel. And I think when that happens, we actually are so focused on fulfilling an obligation that we don't actually see what God is, is, is really doing. You've heard me share this story before, but that literally is what happened one day in Lincoln Park Zoo when I was so zoned and focused that I had to share the gospel, that while I was t talking to somebody, this guy in Lincoln Park, he actually was hitting on me. And I was absolutely oblivious to that fact because I just had to preach the gospel. And while I was trying to preach the gospel to him, he was asking me questions like, like, what kind of bars do I enjoy hanging out? And I didn't even notice what he was doing until eventually he stopped me and he said, do you mind if I say something? And I thought to myself, within, praise the Lord. He's about to ask me to pray for him. And he says to me, you're really cute. That's my, those are some of my experiences with sharing the gospel. I've, I've, I've had incredible moments of joy and moments of where I literally shake my head and go, Lord, you have a sense of humor. You really do. 
Maybe you can relate to some of my personal struggles. Maybe you can relate to some of the things that I've had to work through. Maybe uh, I'm sure every one of us here wants to, those of us who know Jesus, want to preach the gospel and, and, and want to fulfill Jesus' command in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. But maybe you're carrying the burden of past mistakes or missed opportunities. Or maybe you haven't seen the fruitfulness of what happens when, when, when we share the gospel and you haven't had the opportunity to, to actually lead someone to the Lord. And, or, or perhaps you're, you're kind of of that ilk who says, well, I'm just going to leave it up to the Lord. I know, as I said earlier, that there are two responses. And if you're in here today and, and, and this very idea of, of, of speaking about personal evangelism is causing you to wilt, I want to ask you, stay with me for the next 30 minutes. I've taken five already, so there is, is going to be 30 minutes left. <laughs> stay with me for the next 30 minutes. Fight the urge to shut down inside. And if you are shouting inside, yes, it's about time for the church to get out on the streets and to preach the gospel, then I want to ask you just to quieten down a touch. And together, I want us to journey on this journey to discover how does God want us to tell others about his son, Jesus. And we're going to essentially look at two questions. Firstly, how does Jesus save? How does Jesus save? And then secondly, what is my part? How does Jesus save and what is my part? Maybe, maybe you're here today just to say this too, that you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and maybe you've been on the receiving end of some unhelpfully un overzealous Christian. Like, in fact, that happened to me a, a few months ago when, when someone cornered me and, and told me that Jesus loves you, but if you don't repent, you're going to burn in hell. And I know how, how, how hurt I felt by receiving that. And if, if you don't know Jesus, I want to say, would you look past our mistakes? And would you journey with us this morning too. And I hope and trust that the love of Jesus, the love of the Father through his son Jesus, will be revealed to you today as we get into God's word. Just uh, to set the context of this morning's sermon, we're in the uh, series that is unpacking Church in the City's vision framework. This is week seven of 10. So after today, we've got three more Sundays. And this vision framework is, is, it kind of describes uh, 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 who we are, how we see the world, and the world we long to see. That's kind of the, the, the three big questions we're trying to ask and answer through this particular series. And, and this vision framework is, is built on the foundation of what we've termed our belief. It's the, it's the work of God in our hearts and in church in the city. And we've defined it as such behind me. The power and presence of Jesus deeply transfers back in lives by gifting us with intimacy with the Father and freeing us from everything that holds us back and holds us down. I've been meditating and working on and preparing sermons around and chatting with the staff and with Eric and the elders and, and the leaders for probably about seven or eight months on this particular statement. And can I say, I'm yet to grow tired of it. I love the, 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 the intricacies and the power and the incredible promises that come with this statement. I'm drawn to the reality of Jesus's power and presence. I'm drawn to the, to the, to, to the, to the opportunity to, to be transformed that comes every time I, I encounter Jesus. I love the intimacy and the acceptance that I experience from the Father and the promise of freedom that that statement makes, that I know to be true, the promise of freedom from self and from sin and from Satan and freedom to, to, to trust and to worship and to adore and to ultimately say yes to Jesus. That belief statement gives rise to what we've termed our banner, which is our vision, which is our ultimate aspiration, the, the, the thing that we long for that's going to determine how we live in the here and now. And that banner statement is this, 
all of Jesus for everyone. All of Jesus for everyone. Not the part of Jesus that we prefer, not the part of Jesus that we're most comfortable with, but all of Jesus. And not just for everyone in here, everyone from every tribe, nation, and tongue, from every walk of life and across every generation. For that banner to become a reality, we need to outwork it in the context of values. These are the commitments that we're going to make with one another. And we have five, of which today is number four. In order for all of Jesus for everyone to become a reality, firstly, the first value, which is the one that we've said is above all others, is this, all of us for Jesus. It's a statement of surrender. It's a statement of of yieldedness. It's a statement of lordship. It's a statement of worship. In order for all of Jesus, for everyone to become a reality, it requires, secondly, that we abide in God and that we move with God. We can't be driven by needs, friends. Needs, your needs or the needs of the world. There are, there are the, if we are a need-driven people, we will become a burnt-out people very quickly. We need to prioritize the one thing above all else, and that is intimacy with Jesus. And then thirdly, what Matt so wonderfully unpacked for us last week, all of Jesus for everyone requires that we always remember that we serve the God of the impossible. We we expect the impossible because God is faithful to his promises and God is able to do impossible things. I know I get a bad rap for alliterations. Matt mentioned it last week. And, And can I just say, for those of you who have journeyed with church in the city for a number of years, well, for, probably from the early days, I had a reputation, and I know I did, kind of overuse the alliteration as a, as a sermon tool. And I haven't done it for years, so I don't know why there is such a, a bad rep. We need to let bygones be, be bygones and forget the past. Having said all that, having just declared that, I want to say this. What those statements do in me, what those statements stir in me is this. The focus that it brings, the freedom that it releases, and the faith that it stirs in our hearts. Amen. That was like going to Vince's 80s party yesterday, kind of a throwback to the past, a throwback to, to, to the olden days. Acts chapter 2 is a powerful passage. If you want to turn in, this, in, the, in, in your Bibles, if you have them with you, this, the text will come up on the screen behind me. But Acts chapter 2 talks about the birth of the church, the first church in, in, in Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful picture of the power of God being poured out upon his people. And right at the end of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter two from verse 42 to verse 47, is this, is this snapshot, this look at what the early church looked like. And in verse 42, it tells us what the early church gave themselves to. And it says this, They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship and to life together, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the result of all of that is found in verse 47. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think the mistake that so often we make in modern Christianity is we, is we juxtapose, we forget the responsibility that we have and the responsibility that only the Lord has. God alone is the one who saves. God alone is the one who promises to add into our number. And unfortunately, we take on that as a burden on ourselves, and in doing so, we forget what we are called to do. We are called to devote ourselves to teaching, and to fellowship, and to worship, and to breaking bread, and to prayer. The Lord alone is the one 
who saves. And we can't ever forget that. The Bible, and in the book of Acts in particular, is full of examples of emphasizing that Jesus is the one who heals miraculously. Jesus is the one who moves in power. And Jesus is the one who adds uh, people into his kingdom. Acts chapter 3 tells the remarkable story and accounts of Peter and John who miraculously heal a lame man. And a crowd of people gather around them and they want to elevate Peter and John and make them demigods. And, And they say, no, stop. Do you think it's us who healed this man? No, it was the Jesus that you crucified that made this man well. Acts chapter 4. The very next chapter, they are dragged before the Sanhedrin, the the religious council. And and, And the religious leaders acknowledged that the revival had broken out despite these disciples being ordinary and unschooled men. But it had happened because they had been with Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, one of those religious leaders says to his friends, he says, Guys, if this is of God, if this move is of God, which I think it is, do you think we're going to have the ability to stop what God is actually doing? Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 describe Stephen as he's being stoned to death, glowing with the glory of God, proclaiming to the Jews who are, to, who are stoning him, stop, can't you see the Holy Spirit that is at work among you? Acts chapter 8, the power of God poured out upon the city in Samaria. And then Philip preaches the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch and then gets teleported to another city. Have you tried teleportation in your own strength? Have you? Because if anyone succeeds, I want to sign up and be, and be part of that. God alone does it. Acts chapter 9, Paul gets radically saved and comes to know Jesus without meeting a soul. He has an encounter with God. Acts chapter 10, the Spirit of God is poured out upon Cornelius' house as Peter is preaching. And on and on and on. The point is this. Jesus alone is the one who moves in power in us and through us, yes. But he alone is the one who can save. And even as I make that statement, though, it can cause us at times to be a little retiring and to think, well, it's all up to God. I don't actually have to do anything. So the two questions, again, that we're going to ask and answer, how does Jesus save? And secondly, what is my part? How does Jesus save? Some of you participated in a survey that I sent out this this last week. Thank you for everyone who took the time to, to help with preparing my sermon this morning. But... The answer to the question, how does Jesus save, is Jesus saves in an infinite number of ways because we are so infinitely different from one another. And I want to share just a few examples of of things that that God used to save some of you in this room. Some of you weren't just saved through one of these examples, but a multitude of of different ways and different means that, that God used to draw himself, draw you to himself. Let me go through these examples, and hopefully that'll stir some some creativity and some faith in our hearts. Jesus saves through ordinary conversations. That was the case in John chapter 3 when Jesus was speaking to to, uh, Nicodemus, when he said to him, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Ordinary conversations. There, There are two verses that come to mind about this particular way that God saves. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Listen to this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
First Peter chapter three, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope, but do this with gentleness and respect. You'll probably notice in both texts that there's this reference to answering questions, and I think that's very significant. You see, when, when we are answering questions that people are asking, it indicates to us that God is already at work, and sharing Jesus with others only works when God is already at work in their hearts and in their lives. So often the way that we can share Jesus with others is just to have an ear, to listen to what questions people are asking. A number of you spoke of unfortunately tragic circumstances and situations that you had to go through that began to stir questions in you that friends and family members were around to help answer. Secondly, Jesus saves through parenting or children's ministry. This was the case with Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Timothy, I've noticed your faith that I've seen in your grandmother and your mother, and now I'm convinced is real and alive in you. Some of the most evangelical, some of the, sorry, some of the most evangelistic things that you and I will do in this room is to parent our children in the way that they should go in the things of the Lord. And it comes with faith and patience. Can I just say, there are times when... <laughs> When you see your kids and you think, Lord, is there ever hope? <laughs> my girls, I love my girls, but when they, were, when they were four and five or five and six, they were very competitive with one another. And I remember so clearly Hannah walking into the room with her chest, kind of her shoulders back and her chest out as she tended, tended to do then and still does now, and kind of walked into the room and, and she, declares, she declares to everyone, I, 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 love, I love Jesus. And Rebecca, who was just trying to do one up on her, said, well, I love the devil. I mean, that's, and I, I, mean I was... I'm like, oh my goodness, really? That's the state of my children right there. But the amazing thing is, I mean, literally days later, days later, you suddenly see signs of hope. We, we had a situation literally a few days later where Hannah had, had sliced her head open because um, she had run, run against a wall in the kitchen and, and there, was, there was panic in the house. Hannah was bleeding profusely from, from her head and dead. And I was doing my general thing of organizing and putting things away um, and avoiding the blood and... And Rebecca, Rebecca walks into this confusion and she says, we need to pray. We need to pray. And then you realize, oh, it's all worth it. It's going to happen. <laughs> Philip and Ashley Black have this incredible testimony. You guys, most of you in this church know where they adopted Talia, Talia Black from uh, Sierra Leone, uh, ravaged by the Ebola vi uh, uh, virus crisis. And this week she gave her heart to Jesus as Lord and Savior. I mean, just beautiful stories of, of parenting and how they radically change and impact someone's life. So I want to say, disciple your own kids if you have them. And if you don't have them, help others disciple their kids. But ask the parents first, can I just say? Ask the parents first. And if you don't, then consider serving in children's ministry. Do you know that up to half the, the, the people in the U.S. who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior came to know him before the age of 13? Half of people. Jesus saves through signs, wonders, and miracles. The book of Acts is full of examples of, of the power of God being on display where, where, where uh, uh, the God of the Bible is, is made known to be bigger than the gods that people were serving and the impossible circumstances that people were facing. And a number of you in the room have testified to the reality of being saved in church revivals where the power of God is moving amazingly. 
Jesus saves through a life well lived and the example of other Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2, live such good lives among unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. This was instrumental in my salvation. Two uh, girls in my chemistry class, and yes, they were girls, and I was single, but that wasn't the reason. But two girls in my chemistry class continually uh, 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 showed me a different way to live at university, and I was drawn to that. And eventually, one of them took me to church, and I got saved. Jesus saves through reading the Bible. That was true of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Andrew Wu, I don't know, yes, Andrew's over there, testifies to the fact of, as he was journeying to come to know God, found himself reading the Bible audibly and feeling the sense of peace and rest wash over him, almost to the point where he couldn't stop reading. Jesus saves through books and resources. I I can't find any examples in the Bible of that one, but... He does save through books and resources. Ann Johnson and Nick Dykert both testify of the impact of C.S. Lewis's writings in then coming to know the Lord. Jesus saves by the public preaching of the gospel. We know that to be true. I got saved in a church meeting. Jen Manabat got saved at Willow Creek. 3,000 got saved when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2. Jesus saves through direct revelation. It's true of Paul in Acts 9, where Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus was true of Eric when he cried out to the Lord one day, Lord, if you are real, would you show yourself to me? And God did. It was true of Claire who, who, who heard an audible voice say, surrender and give me your heart. Jesus saves through, through direct revelation. Jesus saves through cross-cultural ministry. Asaf in Russia, Philip in France, getting hold of their hearts. Jesus saves as the, as the church functions as the church. We can't underestimate the power of what happens when we gather on a Sunday morning to celebrate and worship Jesus and the impact that it has in the heavenlies and into our city. I've given you a number of ways of how Jesus saves. So, so the answer, the question we need to ask now is, is what is my part? And, and the point of the sermon is this, my part in every single instance is completely different. And it doesn't always look like it did for me trying to walk up to a complete stranger in Lincoln Park and to share the gospel with them. It looks different the way how God is moving in people's hearts and in people's lives. Sometimes helping others know Jesus as Lord and Savior requires us to be alert and wise and available to answer questions. Sometimes it requires us to parent our children or to serve in children's ministry. Sometimes it requires us to pray for someone who is sick and to trust for their healing. Sometimes it requires us to shower a neighbor or a work colleague with love and, and, and kindness and not to get involved in gossipy conversations. Sometimes it, comes, it, it, it requires us to buy a Bible for a friend or a Christian book that we know is going to minister to them based on the struggle that they're going through. Sometimes it requires us to invite someone to church. Sometimes it requires that we pray that Jesus would simply reveal himself to them. Sometimes it requires us that we travel to the nations, and sometimes it simply requires that you stand at the door on a Sunday morning and you warmly greet someone as they walk into the church for the very first time. In none of the examples that I've given is our effort redundant, but neither is our ability decisive as to whether somebody gets saved. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus alone saves, and by God's grace, we get to help. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me 
unless the Father who has sent them draws them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, sorry. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Helping others come to know Jesus, friends, is a, is a case of us looking for ways that God is already at work in their lives and finding out how we can come along to help with that which God is already doing. I've used this example before, so forgive me for repeating it for those who've heard it before, but so often we view preaching the gospel as, as climbing a mountain. We have this heavy weight of burden and expectation and responsibility on our shoulders, and, and for those who are mountaineers or mountain climbers, and I'm certainly not, you can only summit a mountain once a year. And, so, and it's like that with preaching the gospel. We have this weight and, and of burden uh, and, and expectation, and we try to summit the mountain. And whether we succeed or not, we're so exhausted from our efforts that we refuse to do it again at least until another year. But preaching the gospel, sharing Jesus with others, needs to be how we drive which is we're always looking out and alert to what is happening around us. Where is God at work? What is God saying? How do I need to get involved with the things that he's already doing? James beautifully described, I can't remember, a couple years ago, uh, an account of, of him and, and one of his daughters unpacking a dishwasher. And, 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 he, and he describes the account of his daughter wanting to help James. And he so easily could have said, well, thanks, I'll do it myself which, he, which he, he could have done a phenomenal job, or he could, have left it, he, he could have left it to Amelia, I guess it was. He could have left it to Amelia, and there would have been chaos and broken glass everywhere. But James unpacked the dishwasher in such a way that he was doing all the work, but it, it, it allowed Amelia to feel like she was part of the process. That's how God invites us to share the gospel with him. He's the one who saves. He's the one who's doing the work. But he does it in such a way where he invites us to partner with him. So how does all of Jesus for everyone become a reality? It becomes a reality when all of us for Jesus is a reality. When we abide with God and when we move with God. When we always remember that we serve the God of the impossible. But all of Jesus for everyone becomes a reality when we invite others to join us in knowing Jesus. How does your relationship with Jesus overflow in introducing him to others? How does your relationship with Jesus overflow in introducing him to others? We're going to end in the next five minutes, but what I want to do is get quite practical. And I've been studying Psalm 37. And in the first nine verses, there are five amazing statements that David writes about things that we need to do in the Lord. And I think these apply so beautifully to this subject that we're talking about, about personal evangelism. Five things, five practical things that you and I can do as it comes to our relationship with Jesus overflowing in order for others to come to know him too. The first one is found in verse three. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. In fact, it goes on in verse three. David writes, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do right. Trust in the Lord and, and live in a way that reflects your trust in the Lord. And so the way you parent your kids, the way you conduct yourselves in friendships, the way you conduct yourself at work and your work ethic, the way you drive around the city, does that reflect your trust in the Lord? Trust in the Lord and do good. Secondly, in verse 4, take delight in the Lord. 
Take delight in the Lord. And David says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think we can actually say, take delight in the, in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of his heart. Because when we take delight in the Lord, his heart becomes our heart. The two become one. In Matthew chapter 9, it describes Jesus looking upon the crowd of people. And it says he, he, he saw the crowd and he, and he looked upon them with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. That word to, to, to see, actually in the original Greek, doesn't describe the seeing with natural ability, but it's actually a prophetic seeing. It's to see the crowd with the compassion and the heart of the Father. And that's what happens when we take delight in the Lord. When we surrender and submit our hearts to Him, we begin to see people around us with the compassion that the Father has. Have you asked God for His heart, for His delight for those around you who don't know Him as Lord and Savior? God delights in those people. God delights in those friends of ours who don't know Him as Lord and Savior. And He wants us to experience His delight for them. Number four, number three, from verse five, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. And then it goes on, and he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. In other words, the favor of God will rest upon you. When you commit your way to the Lord, the favor of God will rest upon you. When you commit your way to the Lord to want to see your friends saved, the favor of God will rest upon you. God wants you to take his favor and his grace and his anointing into your place of work, into your home, into your neighborhood, into your schools. And to release his fragrance that's upon you, upon others. How can you use your home or your job or your passions and your desires, the things you love to do, to help others see and know Jesus? Number four, we nearly finished. Number four from verse seven, be still before the Lord. Be still before the Lord. And it goes on to say, and wait patiently for him. And this is so hard sometimes, isn't it? To wait patiently for the Lord. Especially when it comes to this idea of evangelism. Waiting patiently for the Lord. Being still before the Lord is not the kind of waiting patiently that I had to endure when I was in high school waiting for the bell to ring during double period of accountancy. I took accounting as one of my subjects in high school, and on a Friday afternoon, we had a double session of accountancy, one and a half hours of accountancy, and literally the moment the lesson started, everyone in the class was just, when is this going to end? In fact, I actually fell asleep and, uh, during one of the lessons and got picked up by my ear, by, and this is in South Africa, but by the accountancy teacher and got whacked across my my earlobe by the, by the teacher. Those were back in the days when that was appropriate behavior for a, for a teacher. That's not the waiting patiently that God wants us to, to, to enjoy with him. There was another kind of waiting patiently. In gym class, the last two boys, I was at an all-boys school, the last two boys to arrive at gym class would have to do 50 push-ups and run around the track twice. And so before gym class came, everyone was getting ready to run down to the locker room so that we could change and get to, and, and, and get to gym to make sure we weren't one of the, of the last two. So the math class before gym, we were waiting, we were still, but we were getting ready. 
We had packed our things. We were looking at our watches. We were waiting for the bell to ring. There was an expectancy and a readiness in the air. We were looking. We were listening. We were watching. We were trying to navigate our, the fastest route out of the classroom. So the moment the bell rang, we were able to run to the locker room. That's the kind of waiting patiently that God wants us to, to enjoy when we are looking for how he's at work. It's not walking through the day like ho-hum. It's, Lord, where are you at work? How can I share your gospel? Who do you want, to, want me to speak to? Be still before the Lord. And then lastly, number five, hope in the Lord. Verse nine, hope in the Lord. In fact, David says, those who hope in the Lord will receive their inheritance. Will receive their inheritance. Jesus hoped in the promises of the Father, which is why he was able to completely trust and only do that which he saw his Father doing. That's why there were times when Jesus was pushing hard towards, towards, towards Jerusalem and at times where he paused at the well because he knew a Samaritan woman was about to come and draw water. There were times when the crowd was pressing in around Jesus and he said, I need to go away to the next village because that's what the Father has called me to do. And there were times when the crowd pressed around him and he said, who touched me? And he ministered to a woman who had an issue of bleeding. There were times when Jesus gently spoke to a young girl and said, get up. And at times where he challenged his best friend, Satan, get behind me. You see, Jesus was following the ways of the Father. Sometimes sharing Jesus with others can be like trying to figure out how to use Debbie's keys. We know there is a key for every lock, but we don't know which one fits where. And after three or four attempts, we generally give up trying. But the reality is the same spirit who was in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is living in you and me. And as much as we want to see our friend or work colleague saved, let me tell you, Jesus wants them to be saved a thousand times, infinitely more times than you do. And Jesus is actually pursuing them more than he's pursuing you. And he is, the, he is the master locksmith and knows the key to their heart if we would just take the time to ask him. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that my keys are godly and Debbie's aren't. But these, these are my keys. Each one is nicely color-coded. <laughs> in fact, they are in order of, as the, these colors would appear in the spectrum. They're just... <laughs> That's the kind of person that I am. <laughs> but every time I walk up to a door, most of the doors that I need to unlock, I know exactly which key I need to use. And I, and I, can, un, and I can unlock it. Now, as I say, please don't miss the illustration. I'm not, comp I'm not saying that my wife is ungodly, and I am because I order my keys. <laughs> but the point that I'm trying to make is this. Jesus is the master locksmith. Jesus knows every key to everyone's heart. And if we were just to take the time, if we were to abide in God and to move with God and to discover what is the key that is going to unlock that person's heart, if we were to remind ourselves that God is the God of the impossible and that the situation or circumstance of, of someone, someone's heart being seemingly so closed to the gospel, we know that Jesus is able to unlock them. And that's why we are able to invite others to join us in knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want to invite the worship team to come up if you guys don't mind. We're going to end off with a song.
as the worship team are getting ready and as we're going to close this morning, the issue that I just felt on my heart to pray for, both whether you are here today as a believer in Jesus or whether you're here today and you do not know Jesus, is this issue of trusting the Lord. Trusting the Lord. David writes in, in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. And I want to ask you here today, if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, salvation means your willingness to trust in the work that Jesus has done on the cross. I'm not inviting you to join this church. I'm not inviting you to, to a religion. I'm not inviting you to a, to a, to a, a system of, of confined living. I'm inviting you to come to know the one who created you, who spoke life over you, and who wants to unlock the full potential that he has placed in each of you. You're here today and you're saying, Steve, I want to know Jesus. I want to come into relationship with my heavenly father. I don't understand it all, but I know God is, 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 is unlocking my heart. I would love to pray with you right now. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do something very brave. I'm going to ask you right now, if you wouldn't mind just lifting up your hand. And I would love to lead you in a prayer right where you are seated, where you can say, Jesus, I want you to come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. If that's you today, would you mind just lifting up your hand real quick? And I would love to just take a moment to pray with you where you can in, in, invite Jesus to come into your heart. Anyone, real quick. Maybe someone is here today who, who has made that decision before and you know you've walked away from God. You've spent the last number of years locking things in your heart, keeping them away from God. You've given them part of your life, but you've, you've, you've said, Lord, these areas I'm keeping to myself. Maybe today God is knocking on those doors and saying, I want to open them. I want you to experience the fullness of life that comes with complete surrender and trust. If that's you today, just lift your hand. I'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you so much for the ability that we have to know you as Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord God, for the work that you're doing in our hearts. And I pray this morning, Lord God, that, 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 that reality of overflow to be experienced with every single one of us. Lord, would you work in our hearts in such a way that when we go from this place, we're not going with burden and expectation. We're not going with responsibility and, and heaviness. But I pray, Father God, even as we go into the song and end, end this morning by worshiping and declaring you, your, your greatness and your lordship, I pray that you would cause just a, a rising up of life and joy and liberty that would overflow in our hearts and lives to the people around us. I pray, Lord God, when we go to work tomorrow, people would ask, what's up with you? When we go back home this afternoon or we see an, an old friend or an old family member, Lord, I pray they would say, you look different. What's going on? I pray, Father God, that we would be inundated with questions this week about you. And I pray, Father God, above all else, I pray for the ability for every one of us to be able to see and hear what you are saying and what you are doing. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. I pray that life would just overflow from us 
into the world, into the city and the world around us. Let's stand together and let's end with a song of worship this morning. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.